The Charles Adler Show starts now. Wow, 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 wow. She is a singer and songwriter and producer. But the reason she's on is because we're buds. Someday we'll even have a, a cup of coffee or a drink. Jan Arden in Alberta, welcome to the Charles Adler Show podcast. We're, we're, this is becoming a habit now. Well, yeah, twice, I think, in three weeks. So, yeah, that, that would be... That's, uh, that's, that's great. And I bet yeah. you we still have lots to talk about. <laughs> we do. Well, last time I was on yours, you've got the, the great iHeart podcast available on iHeart or wherever you get your, your podcast for, for Jan Arden. And uh, we, we talked a little bit about the, the cause that uh, is represented in the, in the hat that you're wearing for people who are listening and not watching. Jan is wearing a horseshit hat. That doesn't believe that doesn't that it's not a big about her being cynical. It's about her being hopeful that uh, the particular cause that uh, she and I and many other Canadians thankfully support, and I think we've got people from around the world uh, in support, um, is to get some of the the horseshit out of politics. And we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But there's no way that um, I'm not leading off uh, this uh, discussion, Jan, with uh, your thoughts. Go as as long as you want, uh, please. Whatever you're feeling about Sinead O'Connor. Oh, gosh. You know, first of all, I wish people would support each other and say kind things when people are alive. She has been struggling uh, with mental illness and, and lots of other issues for, you know, probably since she ripped the picture of the Pope in half. People were extremely unkind to her. And uh, it's always that rose-colored glasses thing when people pass away. It's like, what an extraordinary artist and what an icon and what a trailblazer and what a this and that and the other thing. And, you know, really she's been sitting in the darkness as, you know, for a long time with really nobody saying anything. I watched her documentary uh, several months ago and I commented on Twitter just how fantastic she was and how fantastic the documentary was and what a reminder it was of just what an extraordinary uh, thing happened really in the, in the late eighties when she really was catapulted almost instantaneously with nothing compares to you, which of course was penned by uh, the also passed over Prince. Um, And it just was an international phenomenon. Uh, This beautiful woman with her short, you know, hair and, singing this song directly to the camera and it captivated an entire world uh, about the emotions of a breakup and and loss and all those things. And I don't know how anyone, Charles, can prepare themselves for that kind of instantaneous fame. And uh, anyway, it, it really is, it's, it's, a, it's a tragedy. Uh, she lost her son 18 months ago and I cannot fathom the depths of Whatever she was going through, I can only speculate. I never met her. I didn't know her. I only appreciated her, of course, from the distance. So when she ripped that picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live and was never invited back to Saturday Night Live and was really excoriated, even by fans, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, Jan, where an arena or a stadium full of fans are, are booing you, but I can't, I can't even imagine what that's like for a performer, but what people paid very little attention to even then was why she ripped the picture. She ripped the picture because there were confirmed reports of not a few, but of tens of thousands of young people 
abused in the worst way possible by the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is the head of the Church. It wasn't personal between her and the person who happened to be the Pope. It was about abuse. Why was she abused for doing that? Well, the, the interesting thing also, further to that, the picture she ripped up was the actual photograph that hung on her mother's wall. She, she suffered abuse from the time she was a very, very little girl. And, you know, here we are all these years later, and she was right. She continues to be right. Her statement was correct. Um, Catholicism is broken, as far as I'm concerned. It certainly doesn't represent everybody or every priest or every person that is involved in the church, but there is a, a large number of men to this day that go unpunished. I, I don't think the Catholic Church has really ever fully come forward and apologized and made uh, you know some kind of compensation for, like you said, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that have been sexually abused over the last thousand years, like, I, I don't even know where to begin. But you know, that that is religion. Uh, we can point fingers at Catholicism, but it, it's it's so widespread. And, and poor Sinead um, stood very bravely and boldly, and you, you got to hand it to her. She stood for what she believed. She stuck her neck out. She did it unapologetically. And that's what artists do. And that's what they've done, you know, for time immemorial is they've made statements they've made political statements they've told stories they've expressed about injustice and you know she was she was she was right and it should be pointed out i guess uh if we're discussing this that she too was abused severely in a in a setting in a, in a school setting a school that was uh, run by nuns yeah Oh no, she she came from so much sorrow. Maybe that's why we heard it in her voice. I mean, she had an unmistakable style. She was she was a, a she had moments of like extreme sort of volatility on stage. Her live performances were exciting. I've seen so much footage of her over the years. But I remember, you know, I hadn't signed my record deal yet at that time. I was a few years later. But watching her in a sea of what was really happening at the time was the grunge scene on the West Coast. It was Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and it was all these young, angsty guys with their straggly hair and singing rock and roll and singing about, you know, the 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 corporations, man, like down with the world. And and Sinead, she, if you want to look at Alanis Morissette, Celine Dion. Um, in, in modern times, Beyonce, Madonna, all these people that she, she just blasted all the doors off of every building because she was really genreless and she was powerful and she wasn't hypersexualized as we've, we came to see in the nineties with Aguilera and Britney Spears and really every woman that's come along that was not yet 20 years old, so highly sexualized. And Sinead wasn't, she was beautiful, but she almost she almost removed all the stuff that men could penalize her for, which is like long flowing locks and big boobs and big hips. And, you know, she was so sexy and so, but, but because of power and because of integrity, intelligence and, and her smart. So she was, she was one of a kind. And like I said, at the top of the show, I wish people would be complimentary and supportive and, and shower praise on artists that really deserve it. 
And, and, you know, on the day after they die, we see the pictures and the praise and she was so great. She was this and honest to God, it just makes me so mad. Jen, have you ever written from pain, performed oh, on the stage from pain? There, there are people who think that uh, pain is, is the greatest motivator. I never want to believe that, but I do believe that that pain can can make a person want to write some things down and perhaps sing them. Yeah, I think that's a general um, uh, motivation for most artists, certainly the ones that I know. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I there's a lot of joy too, but anyone that listens to my music, Charles, you know, I'm always like, God, she's so depressing and blah. And I don't find it depressing. I find it so joyful and so uplifting to hear anything so, sorry, that's me. I'll, I'll hit my, my mute. Uh, stop it. Focus. Get, get it in here. What I get, do not disturb me. Um, yeah, I, I just find so much joy in anything in a minor key, like any kind of symphony stuff or who doesn't love an opera with the aria that comes, you know, near the end of the show where you're just like, Oh my God, my heart's getting ripped out because someone's going to be murdered or died or, or buried or the a breakup or unrequited love. And I am a sucker for that stuff. I really don't want to hear summer jams on a regular basis. I'd rather be listening to Simon and Garfunkel who bring me so much joy, that kind of music. Um, but yeah, I, I write about personal things and I think people take my stuff a little more seriously than even I do. Sometimes they really want to know what's it about. I'm like, I have no damn idea. Can singing remove the pain? Oh, I love to sing. I, I, I don't sing as much as I used to. In my 20s, I was obsessed. But I think singing is very good for people. I think it's a very old, uh, it's been with us probably since human beings plopped out onto the planet. I think every species is musical. I mean, who doesn't love birdsong? And who doesn't love, you know, a whale singing and, and all the great sounds in nature that really give us these deep rooted feelings of kind of belonging and um, that we're not alone here spinning through the universe. I, I, I think singing so great. And a lot of people are like, oh, I don't sing because I can't sing. I'm a terrible singer. And I don't, it doesn't matter how good or bad you are. I'm not the greatest singer in the world. I sing, I have my own peculiar little way of doing it, but I sure as hell I'm not a Dal or any of those girls that are so proficient and, and can just bend a note into this shard of light that is almost blinding. I think I'm average at what I do, but I think I've been absolutely consistent and persistent and resilient, and I do what I do. And that's the thing about being a musician. You don't have to you don't, you don't have to be Adele to make it, thank okay. God. Okay, so, Jen, I, sorry, i got to put up the Canadian stop what? sign here. What's happening? I don't, the I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to arrest the guest in her tracks, but they're self-deprecating and then they're self-immolating. You're a terrific singer. You inspire people around the world. We are so proud of you as a Canadian and, of course, as a performer. I'm proud of you as a fellow performer and, 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 and someday a, a coffee date. But please, 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 this business of you just being an average performer, stop. But I'm being very earnest and I don't compare myself to other people. Like I don't look at other people and go, I wish. I've never been that person. You know, I was a 10-year-old, 11-year-old in my parents' basement 
picking up my mom's old crappy guitar in the corner. My dad was an alcoholic, so we were out in the sticks. It's not like I could walk to the bowling alley and meet my friends. I had nowhere to walk to. You know, I could, we used to have cow patty fights in the fields. I mean, this is the kind of past activities we, we partook in after school. You want to go throw some shit around? Yeah, sure. I'll meet you at the end of the field. And so when I discovered music in my parents' basement, and we were very proud members of the Columbia Record Club, I might add, which was a kind of a crapshoot. Yeah, you get to pick 10 records for a penny. And then every month after that, you just got what they sent to you. And if you didn't want it, you sent it back, which was a huge rigmarole, if you can remember back to that. But what happened is that we were getting records like Sammy Davis Jr. and James Taylor and Jethro Tull and these bizarre, uh, the Tijuana Brass, like records I would never have, Etta James, Aretha Franklin, the Supremes, the Mills Brothers, you know, this is the, the mid-70s. And my mind exploded because I was exposed to so much music. So I just, uh, I just made my way. To this day, I don't read music. I, I don't I don't transcribe it. I don't understand the notation. I never learned that. So I feel a little dumb sometimes that I didn't learn that. But I've had lots of people say, don't, you don't need to do that. Just keep doing what you're doing. But yeah, I, I, I honestly, I don't, I know what my skill set is and I'm good at what I do, but in comparison on a global scale, my God, you, you listen to these voices out there and I'm just so inspired. I'm still learning at 61. I'm still trying to figure out how to write songs. And that is a never ending um, path that we walk. And I, I, I think I will write music till the day I die. I'll probably be whistling a tune. Hopefully the last thing that comes out of my head will be, my last breath will be a note of some kind, like, ah, ah. That'll be my that'll be my last call out into the universe. <laughs> that's that's your whip thing. <laughs> no, I'm not not throwing shit around anymore. It's a, it's over. Um, <laughs> so Jan, when you listened to Sammy Davis Jr., did you ever say to yourself, "I need to cover Mr. Bojangles"? Well, I love that, but I love the Candyman can because he mixes it with love. And makes the world taste good. You know, I was just like, holy moly. And he was fascinating to me, you know, part of the Rat Pack and, and you know, really pushing the boundaries. I mean, you think back in the 60s of what diversity did not look like, you know, this black diminutive man that was blind in one eye that had been dancing on the street since he was three years old. He was extraordinary to me. Uh, a lot of people, you know, obviously younger than I am, than we are, Charles, wouldn't remember. He, he really was the Stevie Wonder of his time. He broke so many barriers. He was in movies. He was a star. He had that black eye patch for a while. He was a badass guy. And he could sing and dance and entertain. And he was funny. And he held his own with, you know... Peter Lawford and, and, and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, he held his own and he inspired a lot of, of black people, you know, in the entertainment business. So yeah, stuff like that, that we got from the Columbia record club was an eye opener for this stupid white kid on the prairies that really hadn't been exposed to anything or any kind of diversity. And that's the truth.
Well, this stupid white kid got to interview Sammy Davis Jr. in the 1970s. Oh, my God. In, uh, in Montreal and uh, got to see him rehearse and, of course, perform and do wow. the show and all that. But uh, the part that I'll never forget, and that goes to what you're, you're talking about, Jan, is uh, I ask uh, Sammy Davis Jr. in the interview, and I turn the tape recorder on and I ask him what it is about Canada that he loves so much because he clearly was just uh, one of the more pro-Canadian Americans that I, that I had ever met. And he said the reason he loved Canada is because Canada was the first place where he got to sleep in the hotel that he played. And some people today don't really understand what that means. So in just plain Canadian, it means that in all these fancy places that he played in the United States, he was told, it's still difficult for me to, to say it after all these years, it's still painful. After he did one of those two, three-hour shows where standing there's not a, not a dry eye in the house, standing ovation, greatest thing anyone has ever experienced, he's told by the people who own the place to get the hell out and go to the black side of town to stay in a black motel because he may be one of the greatest entertainers on earth, but he's not white enough to stay in the hotel. Well, shame. And I don't know if we've really come all that far from perceptions. I mean, we're seeing things today in real time with the LGBTQ community. We're seeing things, obviously the war between Ukraine and Russia that, you know, has a lot to do with cultural identity, you know, really at the heart of it. It's, we want all of this to be Russian. We want kids to go to Russian schools and we want them to speak Russian. And, uh, you know, I think at the heart of it is still still bathed and, and drenched in, in hatred and resentment and not wanting anything different and wanting, you know, that, that's, that's what it's all about. It's, it's wanting people to think like you think and wear what you wear and, and look how you look and, you know, the, all the stuff against the drag queens. You and I spoke about that when, when you were on my podcast. And, you know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how much has changed and it's it's really disappointing every time i think we've hit the bottom i say to myself i can't believe this is being said and this week in the united states as you know jen there's a debate about whether or not blacks blacks whether or not they benefited from slavery serious people are discussing that you know i don't know where people have fallen off the cliff where they get these ideas, how they even have the audacity to speak them out loud, like there's something credible, that there's a shred of truth in any of it. It's, um, I just have to somehow find a way to think that there are more good people in the world than bad. It, it comes from such stupidity and such racism and I, I, I don't know how black people even put up with it. Bi BIPOC people, the LGBT community. I don't, I just don't know. I keep waiting for some kind of uprising to happen where these people are just permanently silenced somehow. But it's just, it just, it's an ongoing thing with, with 
people's they they live in a place of hatred like i said they want you to th think like them be like them look like them read what they read that's where the whole book banning thing comes from is no you'll read what we read oh you can think how you want but you can't you have to think like us like they actually think that's some distorted perverted form of freedom and that's the whole freedom thing movement here you know when i was stopped at the border in coots going down there with my friend leah to to drive to palm springs we'd had this trip planned for a long time i had a little dog with me and we had our car all packed up and and there we were i've never been so frightened in my life you know there was trucks that went back a mile uh, i had to laugh at the pink porta potties in the ditch and the barbecues set up and these guys you know grilling and laughing and drinking their beers and and when we went by, people giving us the finger as we drove down and, and had the RCMP take our, our passports and escort us to the border with a, uh, an RCMP car driving us the, this 800 yards to the border. I felt like I was in Berlin in 1939. Um, it was so weird. And I'm like, you, you are actually going to sit there and say you're doing this for me? You're doing this for my benefit because I deserve to have freedom. You have just stripped me of any freedom that I had experienced. And you're scaring the shit out of me on top of it. It was a weird day. And anyone that thinks that what that was, was anything but, uh, I don't know, just horrific. It was a horrific example if that's what people really think freedom is. Well, over the years, unfortunately, uh, many, many people have called it many things. Uh, they've worn different uniforms. They've had different slogans. But very often, so-called freedom fighters weren't about giving you freedom. They were about giving themselves as much freedom as possible to, to snuff yours. So it's a, it's, a really, it's a really bad joke. It is a bad joke. But I, I never in my lifetime thought I'd ever experience that 300 kilometers from, from where I live. And uh, just going by those 18-wheelers, and it was, just, it was just so discouraging and so disappointing. And they don't know me from anything. They certainly didn't know it was me and with my friend Leah in the car. But the way they looked at us, like we were doing something so horrible by going over that border with our, you know, we had our vaccination stuff. We were all ready to go. I mean, that probably in and of itself was like, enough to to send them but just their their giddy joy at their sense of power that particular day was interesting to look at their giddy joy of suppressing and keeping making somebody else afraid was something i'll never forget as long as i live jan is it easier to love animals than people oh my god yes i love them I woke up to deer and foxes this morning. I have a crazy fat single bachelor pheasant that's wandering around my yard who's hilarious. Um, I'm very blessed to live in a place where I experience nature, Charles. It's, it's really incredible. So let's uh, talk about the horseshit cause, which is anything but horseshit. Yeah, we had an interesting meeting yesterday with a, with a member of parliament. He's from Kitchener. Uh, Tim Lewis, and he is presenting uh, in September when uh, the House of Commons goes back into session 
uh, a bill to ban live horse export. And he's there's also another one of his colleagues in the Senate that's also presenting a similar bill to ban live horse export. And, you know, I was really tickled to ask him when we we, co- we, we connected finally because he had presented the bill to the House before it went into recess for the summer. And uh, he sent me a number through social media, the wonders of social media. And we, we spoke last week and I asked him, how did you hear about the live horse experts, Mr. Lewis? And he said, through the horseshit campaign. And I was so touched, you know, his daughter and his wife and um, we had a long conversation about it. And as you know, uh, I did get a chance to meet with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, several weeks ago when I was performing in Ottawa for Canada Day. He went to great lengths to track me down. His office did anyway, not him per se, but they went to the record company. Then the record company went to my management company. And then my management company tracked down my road manager. And they said, can you meet the prime minister in 45 minutes? And I just hoofed it you know, down the street. I was, I was soaking wet when I got there. But uh, Prime Minister Trudeau took the time to explain to me what a private member's bill was and how it was going to be a lot faster than the mandate that he had obviously proposed um, when he was elected. But uh, he was absolutely supportive and said it was a money grab and that it's something that is, shouldn't be happening in Canadian agriculture. And, and you know, that, that it's just you know, that this was something I could be optimistic about. So uh, that's where that's where we're at. Uh, the campaign, I think, has been successful in as much as it's raised the awareness probably from about, uh, you know, 5% of the population to uh, 60 or 70% of the population being aware of Canada exporting large draft horses in aircrafts 8,000 kilometers to their demise in Japan uh, a couple of times a month hundreds of horses go out. Can you give us any sense of what that feels like for the horse to be uh, transported in that way? I just want you to take some time to, to, to let people know just how GD abusive this yeah. is. Well, you know, the it starts out bad. They're purpose-bred. And so in, in layman's terms, these horses, the, the broodmares, they're impregnated, they are, these horses, these foals drop into a feedlot without any veterinary care, into, you know, a foot of shit. These feedlots, you can, you can see from drones, they're massive. They're in Alberta and they're in uh, Manitoba now as well. They're born there. They're, it, they go, they're very fast-tracked. They don't ever get to run in grass. This is mud and hell and large high fences and they're fed a sludge every day that, you know, and 18 months later... There's a, uh, an inspector that comes from Japan and he marks on the horse's rear ends with a, a white chalk thing or which ones that they want. And uh, they're the ones that now, uh, be- after a year and a half of living in hell, they now are put into um, 18-wheeler trucks. They're scared sen- senseless. They've never seen anything else but the feedlots. So they're hit, whacked, prodded, poked reluctantly 80 or 90 of them are put into these trucks and now they're looking at a three four five six seven whatever hour haul it all depends on weather traffic everything else no food no water here's where it starts there's no food or no water at that point they arrive either in calgary edmonton or winnipeg and they are loaded onto wooden crates if they're more than like 16, 15 hands, they're supposed to be in their own crates. That never happens. They never follow the regulations, and the Canadian government does nothing to 
make sure those regulations are met. And that has been a problem for the last 15 years. They just, they don't meet the regulations, the, even the basic things for these animals. So now they are in the crates. It could be 35 below, as you know, in Alberta, or it could be 35 above. Uh, there are delays. There's everything else. They sit in the crates, still no food, no water. They're kicking at the crates. They're foaming at the mouth. They're terrified. Um, they're sitting on the tarmacs. Usually they, they lift them with, with forklifts and they sit beside a very, very large aircraft and they wait, they wait, they wait. They're panicked. They're finally, you know, after freezing their asses off or cooking to death are loaded into a large aircraft, no food, no water still. And we could very well be at the 10, 12, 14 hour mark at this point. Now they have a 14 hour journey across the Pacific ocean to a small island off the, the uh, off the island of Japan. Um, it's not like the pilot can come on and say, hey guys, hunker down, we're gonna hit turbulence for 25 minutes. The center of gravity of a horse is forward. They have very large heads. They hang far over their front legs. Their center of gravity is not like us. Anything sends them. The slightest anything, and they fall over on their comrades. They can never right themselves. They don't report half the deaths on these planes. Still no food or water. Now they're unloaded at the other side. We have no idea really how, how long the loads could take. They could be in those crates another six, seven, eight hours after their long journey and after being on the plane. And what they're met with is a hideous butchering. It's a, it's a very, because of the way these horses are served, uh, they're big horses because of the musculature. They're eaten raw in something called bashimi. And it's by very wealthy people. I'll tell you right now, this is not uh, a, a Japanese stable of, uh, of a Japanese family's household. It's not something they regularly eat. I would liken it to how horses consumed, uh, you know, by people in Quebec. It's, it's the older generation, you know, and, and in France, that's something that's been going on. And trust me, as, as the newer kids come up through the ranks, it becomes less and less and less of something that people eat. But that's not even our issue. It's the live horse export. I don't care what you eat. I don't care how often you eat, whatever it is that you want to do, but you don't put a frightened, indentured horse that has really lived a life of hell and put them on a plate, you know, halfway across the world. It's everything that we're told not to do. The climate crisis, uh, lowering our carbon footprint, uh, eating less meat, eating local. This is the antithesis. Live horse export is the antithesis of what we need to do as a global community to alleviate what we are seeing, flooding, fires, uh, people dying like flies, uh, tornadoes that we've never seen happen in communities we've never seen before. Like this is, we are causing this. Jen, I hate to ask, but I, I have to, in order to get the, the message driven home to people about how just uh, there's just so much horseshit involved in this uh, so-called industry. How are the horses slaughtered before they're butchered, or are they even, or are they even slaughtered before they're butchered? Yeah, it, the, because of the nature of how the the meat is eaten and and how it needs to kind of be plated, it's a very immediate, right? This horse meat has to be eaten within 24 hours. Um, but the ho the horse's heart is still beating; they're hung upside down. And they're, they're uh, stunned some of the time, half the time not, and their heart needs to be beating through the meat as they're carving it off the horse. So it is 
nothing you ever want to look up or Google or anything of the sort. They're very clandestine about the footage. Um, horses of this size are huge. You would have to be up on a footstool or a ladder um, and you'd have to probably have the, the chains or whatever in place when you're bolting them to get them up into the air to put them upside down. So, and they know exactly what's happening. Uh, and it's funny because if you see any of the ads for horses in, in, uh, in Japan or, or in uh, Korea where the horses are eaten, there's these beautifully uh, crafted posters of horses with long manes running through fields of grass. And it's like we do with the cattle industry here, grass-fed, hormone-free, blah, 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 blah. They all die the same at the end of the day. It doesn't matter how you, you look at it. But the thing of it is that the marketing, I mean, the cattle, like the petroleum in Canada, is very heavily subsidized. Agriculture is very heavily subsidized. And, uh, but it's, if we don't start changing the perception, I, I don't know how anything's going to get better. Um, it's just, it's the, it's just so immoral, I think in, on, on many ways. And I'm so sick of the circle of life, life conversation. And, you know, it's, it really is a terrible, terrible life in industrial agriculture. And the horses are a tiny shard of it. And it's something that can be it's something that Canada doesn't need to be involved in. And really, if Japan, if Japanese, if wealthy clients in any country over there, um, they have every right to eat what they want. I'm never saying that. But, you know, you should, probably should raise horses domestically. I think it would be a heck of a lot easier on them. And I think devising, uh, you know, a, a better system. If, if they want to have this as part of, you know, a delicacy for food, I think they should be raised there and be hard on their own land, use their own resources and water. But flying up horses 8,000 kilometers, is, it's repugnant. Jen, uh, for people who want to be supportive of this, this cause, what do they do right now? Well, awareness is everything. Uh, horseshit.ca. If you go to horseshit.com, it's a porn site. I'll warn you now, look out, it's a porn site. Uh, young people doing things that you, you don't want to see. You cannot help us at horseshit.com. Horseshit.ca. Horseshit.ca. All right, horseshit.ca. We'll just emphasize uh, that. Horseshit.ca yeah. for, for horseshit. much more. Yeah. And donations, T-shirts, the hat that I have on, uh, they're all just really, we, we want to be human billboards. That's what our site's about. 100% of the proceed goes to help horses, lots of rescues and sanctuaries. We're already helping. And we're putting in place a plan to help the horses between eight and 12,000 horses that are part of the live export flock right now uh, at different various points. And we, if this do, bill does pass, we want to be ready to help the horses because people always say, Charles, well, what happens, you know, when the exports stop, what are you going to do with the horses? Well, we are ready. We're making ourselves ready with sanctuaries, rescues, adoptions, we want to have the finances to help people take horses on and give them the lives that they deserve. Jan, the other day I was watching Katie Lang performing in tribute to Tony Bennett passing, and she did an incredible job, as she always does, no matter who she's covering. She was covering a Tony Bennett classic. But I couldn't help but feel as a Canadian, especially one who launched a talk radio career in 1990 in Alberta, 
uh, how many Albertans were feeling about uh, Katie Lang. Uh, they weren't proud. Uh, they were embarrassed, and this was because of uh, Katie Lang's uh, decision in those days, being very ahead of her time to uh, be a, a vegetarian and uh, come out uh, against uh, the, the slaughtering of, of animals. A tough thing to do in Alberta in 1990. Is it tough to do what you're doing in Alberta in 2023? No, I, I, you know, oddly enough, Charles, we were talking about this yesterday with uh, the member of parliament, Tim Lewis. And, you know, he was just kind of preparing himself for his bill. And I said, Tim, I have not had one. And I mean it, Charles, not one word from the other side of the fence, the exporters, because it is indefensible. So when you're doing something that's indefensible, when you're giving people facts, when you're telling them exactly what happens, when you are researched, when you are measured, when you have done your homework, there's nothing they can come back with. There was one older gentleman that was representing them a, a, several years ago when W5 did a piece on, on the horseshit uh, cause, the exports. And he came on with his, you know, Sally enough, he was a white guy with a cowboy hat, about 75 years old. And he said, those horses, they like going. They get on there, no problem. And they sleep the whole way. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? What are you talking about? But this is how blind these guys are. They are not going to give up their 20 or 25 million bucks a year. Like everybody else in the world that had to modify their, their business model, like every artist in the world, movies that are streaming, music that are streaming, artists that lost everything, uh, labels that literally fired tens of thousands of people because the industry changed. My industry changed and I had to adapt. These guys have to adapt. It's over. The time of picking up a very large animal and flying it across the world is over. And Canada needs to lead the way. We are one of the last countries in the world doing live horse exports. Brazil, New Zealand, Australia, even those countries that are renowned for sending massive amounts of sheep and lambs to the Middle East. 40,000 animals at a time on a freighter ship for three weeks at sea in crates. And they find 25% loss acceptable throwing these animals into the ocean. 25% of 40,000 animals is an acceptable loss. So they're banning it. They're banning the live exports of animals. This is really going to be known as a time in human history that is so really unmodern and unfeeling and we can't not we can't let this stuff go unchallenged and i know there are so many good people out there even if you are a meat eater there's still people that cringe at the thought of how it's done and and they're making better decisions for themselves like if you if you even give yourself a couple of plant base meals a week, my God, the lives that you're saving. So it's not this all or nothing thing, Charles. And I don't want to sit here and say, damn it, you know, this is all, it's an all or nothing thing. I don't believe that. But we have to make changes in how we're eating because it's going to affect the planet. Jan, there are people who say, even in 2023, I wish performers, I wish actors, I wish singers would just act and sing and, and not chew the fat about politics and, and have causes and I wish they wouldn't take it I just wish they wouldn't take advantage of of their position in life we want them to sing and act but we don't want to hear about their causes there's still a number of people who who talk that way and I wonder if you give us a an opportunity to hear Jan Arden talking back every single person that has the ability to vote 
is a political person. The milkman's political, I'm political. Politicians are probably the least political people there are. It is, democracy is about raising your voice. And if you were around in the 50s and 60s and the 70s, the needle was moved in human rights, in, in racism, in the early black movement with Martin Luther King, um, Malcolm X, you know, people marching in Selma, people that were, you know, were making a difference with how human beings were treated, were everyday people, musicians, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul and Mary, people who sang predominantly political songs, uh, socially charged songs. They were the people that moved the needles. They were the people that told the stories. And I have no intention of ever backing down, you know, in honor of someone like Sinead O'Connor, who with a, that simple action on Saturday Night Live in the 90s, uh, really changed the course of history and started a conversation that never, ever ended. She opened a door that never, ever closed again. And the Catholic Church couldn't deny it. The people couldn't deny it. People came forward by the thousands to speak about their own stories. Musicians are important. Artists are important. They're storytellers. They're the people that travel the country. Musicians, I've, I've been to more places in Canada than probably any prime minister ever. Ask that of Blue Rodeo. Ask that of Great Big C. Ask that of, you know, the late, great Gordon Lightfoot. We play every small town, every nook and cranny, every place we go. And we open our guitar case and we tell our stories to people. And we talk about what we see and what we experience and what we feel. And we share those stories. Sometimes it's hopeful. Sometimes it's sad. But it's always honest. And it's always take me or leave me. People don't have to buy my records. They can shut me off when they hear me on the radio. But they sure as hell can't shut me off in my own life. That's never going to happen. Jen, we all stand on the shoulders of uh, giants, uh, no matter what industry we're in. And some of us are fortunate enough to have giants standing on our shoulders. For me, it's my dad, Mike Adler, and I have a feeling that for you, it's mom. Yes, very much so. She's my true north. My uh, friend Nigel in England got me a weather vane a few years ago, and I finally got it up in my yard this year. He's like, are you ever going to put that bloody weather vane up? <laughs> and... It's standing in my yard where mom's house was because uh, they had a little house here on their property for about 10 years before they both passed away. And of course, modern days, you can pick a house up and move it. <laughs> and, and other people are living in it somewhere about 60 kilometers from here. But I look out at that weather vane all the time. And, and my mom was my true north. She was extremely economical. She wasn't she wasn't religious a person, although she was spiritual. I mean, she told me that, you know, you're... Your soul is your pilot and your body is your spaceship. I mean, this was well into Alzheimer's, but it stayed with me. Like, yeah, your body's your spaceship, but your soul is your pilot. And when you when you leave here, you gotta leave, you gotta leave your spaceship. You gotta leave it, you gotta leave your body back here, but your soul can go wherever. And she was extremely optimistic. I'd be happy sitting in a field on an apple crate. And that can do spirit was indelible with me she always said you're just as good as anybody else and I believed her you know I believed her I I had boyfriends and girlfriends growing up and and I'm sure it was kind of confusing for my mom who were you know it's a certain generation and even my dad who was this staunch kind of 
rough and tough swearing. It was almost like my mom married a sailor, although there wasn't any water within a thousand <laughs> kilometers of us. You know, I remember her telling, uh, I broke up with a girlfriend and, and, and I had phoned my mom crying and I was very, I was young, you know, I was in my maybe late teens, early twenties. And, you know, in, in our house, my dad would always pick up the extension and he'd be chatting away or you could hear him breathing. And I think he'd been listening to me talking to my mom. And he said to me, we, Jan, we would love you if you were pink with purple spots. And it launched me into a life where I was, there was an absence of doubt because my parents legitimized my normalcy and my ability to make my way through the world as exactly who I was unapologetically to speak my mind. And my mom said, it's not always going to be easy, but she said, the best things aren't easy. And she said, the obstacles are what are going to give you character. And so as much as my dad was a fucking thorn in my side for many years, alcoholism is tough. He, with that sentence, gave me a license to fly almost. I can't even explain it. So yeah, pretty incredible to have parents, Charles, that just show us a way that isn't easy. And I don't think the next 20 years is going to be easy if I'm lucky enough to live that long. But I am not going to stop advocating for things that I think are important and worth fighting for. Well, Jen, as you know, uh, I don't think it's anybody's business to tell you who to love and how to love and how many to love. I know that I love you, and I know that hundreds of thousands of people in this country feel exactly the same way. I'm honored I love to- you, Charles. Let's, <laughs> you know, I do. We're, we're kindred spirits, and you inspire me all the time. Uh, your, your, uh, your stance on Twitter and the way that you deal with people is bold, and we, we have to. We have to choose, choose a way. So thank you for enabling me to continue on with my voice because I don't, I don't, I never feel alone out there. I'm like. Adler's out here. He's kicking ass today. <laughs> Listen, someday we're going to have that coffee. My only regret is that I don't get to have it with you and your mom because I just think that would be the, the happiest hour in, in, in my life. Well, it, it really is too bad, but, but uh, it's, she's around, and, and hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm representing, you know, down here representing my parents. I'm sure they're rolling their eyeballs half the time. My God, well, I didn't mean to do that or... Is that what you're going to wear today? My mom would always say that. You're, you're not going to the grocery store wearing that. <laughs> and I don't blame her. Sometimes I look at myself and I'm like, wow, you really have to make an effort here. But uh, anyway, it's, it's always great talking to you. And we'll just keep on keeping on. There's a lot of joy in the world, a lot of good people, a lot of optimism. And I believe we can turn the ship around. And I believe people, if they even make small changes... They are, when you have 8 billion people making a small change, imagine if 8 billion people had two meals a week that didn't include an animal. It would be a, an earth changing decision. And it's not big. Power in numbers. Jen Arden, can't thank you enough. Uh, you can find Jen Arden on her iHeart uh, podcast. You can find her on TV. You can find her on the radio. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you can find her at her home in Alberta. We were lucky enough to do that today. Jen Arden, thank you. 
Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson. Twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press and every day at criermedia.co.